Me and my note of welcome to all of you who are here for the first time as well. This is 128. We call it 128 because it comes, our theme verse comes from Colossians 128, which is that we proclaim Christ or Him we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone complete in Christ. Our goal is to help you be mature in Christ. And we want to do everything we can humanly speaking from our side, with God's help to help you be mature. Also, I want to add something to what Sunny said. You don't want to miss next week's event. It's good to have fun, right? And it's good to have fun with other believers. So let me invite you again for this event. It's called the White Elephant Gift Exchange, and we're looking forward to it. We'll have Sunny and perhaps a few others uh, lead that, and, and we'll, have, we'll have fun together. Okay, turn in your Bibles to uh, Genesis chapter 21. Genesis chapter 21. As you're turning there, let me also mention something. Sunny mentioned about the Christmas concert. Uh, we have these invitation cards. I got some from the information center, and they are at the back on the black table. And so if you would like to invite neighbors, friends, colleagues... Uh, for the concert, typically during this time, they are very open to come. Uh, this is one of the biggest outreach events of our church, so let me encourage you to pick some and, and take with you as you use that to welcome uh, others to come for the concert. So Genesis chapter 21. We're going to t- tonight look at verse 22 to verse 34. Genesis chapter 21, verse 22 to verse 34. In an online article titled, Why We Are Not, uh, we are not Bored Anymore and Why That's a Bad Thing. We are not bored anymore and that's a bad thing. The author writes, have you noticed life is no longer boring? We used to lead regular lives and get bored from time to time. And then we would fret and fidget and search in vain for something to do. Now there's always something to do. And why is that the case? He says, because constant pleasure is at our fingertips. It's a swipe away on your smartphone, a few clicks away on your computer, a push of a button away on your TV remote or a video game console. It would be cool if it wasn't so sad. And then he goes on to share his personal experience. He writes, one day I found myself alone in bed, remote in hand, phone and a laptop next to me, staring at my flat screen TV, wondering what happened to me. What happened to me? And here's what he says. He says, constant pleasure had led to a pointless life of distraction. Constant pleasure had led to a pointless life of distraction. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not glorying in the past and pointing to that as a standard. I'm not being nostalgic and saying, We need to return to the past, you know, the the good old days. Uh, Let's face it, as human beings, since sin entered the world the first time in Genesis chapter 3, we all have been born as sinners with a rebellious heart. We've all disobeyed our great God. We've all sought pleasure over God. What I am saying is that the opportunities to be tempted have grown. And we live in a distracted world. And we're not wary of pain anymore. We are wary of pleasure because we are surrounded and inundated with it. Now, while we have the freedom to choose, what we don't have is the freedom to choose the consequences of our choices. And one of the consequences of constant entertainment and constant pleasure is that we have varied ourselves. We've tired ourselves to the point of exhaustion. We all live in such a world. Now, unless we are careful and careful in guarding our boundaries, you and I, as followers of Christ, can be exposed to the danger of being weary of pleasure. And why is this important to know and understand? Here's why. Because a large portion, portion of your life and my life is filled with the daily routine of things. You know, getting up at a certain time, brushing our teeth, 
spending time in God's word, going to work, maintaining a home, going to the office, doing our chores. Uh, sometimes we get sick and we recover from that sickness and we eat breakfast and lunch and dinner and then repeat the same routine again for so many days in our life. You know, since I turned 18, which was a number of years back, might not think, think that looking at me, you know, since I turned 18, I have lived 9,691 days. And a majority of those days have been involved in following a regular routine of life. And why is it important to recognize this? It is because it is in a normal, regular routine of life that God's grace is put on display. Uh, this, uh, uh, th this temptation to constantly seek thrills and highs in life, it not only robs us of seeing such grace on display, but constantly seeking thrills and highs in life also leaves us exposed to the attack from our enemy, Satan. As he tempts us to think that somehow God is shortchanging us in some way or treating us unfairly or withholding something of value from us. A similar strategy that he used in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. And in that context, our text for today is a wonderful reminder of God's hand in the daily routine of life. You know, as you look at the text, it may seem that nothing of thrill or significance is happening in this text. But as, as we dig deeper, we see a God whose grace continues to work behind the scenes as he prepares Abraham to grow in his faith. Now, this is a continuation of our lesson from last week. So very creatively, I've titled our lesson, God's Grace in Action, Part 2. And here's how I would summarize uh, this text. In the daily routine of life, God's grace is constantly at work as he grants peaceful relationships with those who recognize his presence and allows us to worship him and proclaim his name freely. Let me repeat that. In the daily routine of life, God's grace is constantly at work as he grants us peaceful relationships with those who recognize his presence and allows us to worship him and proclaim his name freely. Now, uh, these verses come in certain contexts, so let me give you that context. It's a bookend to an account that began in Genesis 20. That happened a long time back because that was sometime in May that we looked at that text. But just to refresh your memory a little bit, remember Abraham travels to a region called Gerar in chapter 20 and for the second time claims that Sarah is his sister. And so Abimelech, the king of Gerar, he sends for Sarah, who at this time is in her late 80s and is described as a beautiful woman. And then the Lord appears to Abimelech in a dream that night and tells him, Abimelech, you're a dead man. The woman you've taken is married. What does Abimelech do? He claims innocence based on what Abraham had shared with him. And in a God and his providence and sovereignty, he does not allow Abimelech to touch her and keeps him from sinning against her. And God tells him to restore her to Abraham, tells him that Abraham is a prophet and that he will pray for you. Abimelech goes to sleep that night, gets up in the morning, and then first thing in the morning he confronts Abraham. What have you done to us, he says, and how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? Abraham in response says, I thought surely there is no fear of God in this place, that's why I did it. I thought they will kill me because of my wife, he says. And to tell you the truth, she actually is my sister. She's not the daughter of my mother, but she's the daughter of my father. Now what does Abimelech do? He takes some sheep, he takes some oxen, male and female servant, and then he gives them to Abraham. And he restores Sarah to Abraham, gives him land, gives him the freedom to settle anywhere in the land, gives him a thousand pieces of silver, confirms that it is given to vindicate Sarah and to proclaim 
that he nor anyone else has violated her. What does Abraham do? He then prays for Abimelech and his wife and his maids that God would open their wombs because you see, during this whole episode, God had closed the wombs in that region. And so once he prays, God opens the wombs of the house of Abimelech and he helps them to bear children. That happens in Genesis chapter 20. And since that event in Genesis 20, so far in Genesis 21, we have seen the birth of Isaac, a promise that is delivered. And then last week we saw Ishmael and Hagar's departure. And that brought us to the text that we have. And that was the first end of the bookend. Last week we saw things that took place in the middle and today we come to the last, the second portion of the bookend. So read with me Genesis chapter 20. 1 verse 22. Now it came about at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham saying, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my offspring or with my posterity, but according to the kindness that I have shown to you, you shall show to me and to the land in which you have sojourned. Abraham said, I swear it. As we see God's grace in action, we begin first of all by seeing God's grace in the initiation of this covenant. You know, the text begin with, begins with an indication of the time that these events took place. Now it came about at that time, but we're not told at what time. It's very likely that after the first incidents, Abraham may have kept in touch with Abimelech and uh, it's a part of maintaining a friendly relationship with surrounding kingdoms. And then he, maybe he invited him to Isaac's weaning feast, which t- takes place at the beginning of chapter 21. And it's very likely that an agreement that takes place here now follows that particular event. What are some things that we can notice in these few verses? First of all, notice the people. We're told that Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham. Now, this is the same Abimelech that he has met in chapter 20. Uh, at that time, we were, we, I want to remind you that the name is not a personal name, but more likely a title. Uh, his name means, my father is king. And we meet a man with the same title in chapter 26 again, probably his son. And there we see another interaction with Abraham's son, Isaac. Now, he's here along with Phicol, the commander of his army, And Fikol is also not a personal name, also likely a title, and it means strong. And just like Abimelech, we also meet another man with the same title in chapter 26. And so they meet Abraham, and they're there to get Abraham to sign a covenant with them. Those then are the people. But secondly, we see the persuasion or the motivation for this covenant. Notice what Abimelech says to Abraham. God is with you in all that you do. Now stop there. What a, what a stunning, stunning admission that is. Abraham, we have watched your life and we have seen that there's no, no other reason for the man that you are today apart from the presence of God. What could be some things that Abimelech has seen in Abraham's life to come to that kind of a conclusion? Well, he may have heard of accounts of Abraham's, you know, previous military victories. We remember in chapter 14 when he went against four or possibly five armies and just with a mere 318 men on his side and he captured them and he brought his nephew Lot back. That was Genesis 14. Or surely he remembers God's protection on him and on Sarah despite his duplicitous behavior in chapter 20. Abimelech knew that Abraham is not a man to mess around with. He remembers what God had said to Abimelech in the dream. You are a dead man, Abimelech, he said, because of what you're about to do to Sarah. Surely he remembers that. Or perhaps he remembers God telling him that Abraham is a prophet. And when he prays for you to live, I will answer that prayer on his behalf. That's Genesis 20, verse 7. You know, because God at that time had closed the wombs, as I mentioned And God opened the wombs as soon as Abraham prayed for them. Or surely 
Abimelech has seen the material prosperity in Abraham's life and his increasing reputation in the surrounding region, he cannot help but come to a conclusion that God is with this man. And then the, the greatest of all miracles, the birth of Isaac. After all, this is a 90-year-old woman, a 100-year-old man. Nothing can explain them having a child apart from God's amazing grace and his presence. It's clear, Abraham, that God is with you, he says. And before we go further, let me stop here and reflect with you. Uh, that is a stunning admission by an unbeliever. It's actually a testimony of God's grace on Abraham's life. It's an admission of God's presence with Abraham. And this is, again, an unbeliever admitting it. Let me ask you, how do unbelievers think of you? Your co-workers, your neighbors, your relatives who don't follow the Lord Jesus Christ? Is this how unbelievers think of us? That there is something different about this man? That there's something different about this woman. Their life reflects something that is supernatural. It doesn't seem to be natural. Uh, God is present with them. Or have you gone to one end of the spectrum where you just talk and behave like an unbeliever does, all with the noble goal of reaching them for Christ? Or you go to the next extreme where you have zero interaction with unbelievers, all with the noble intention of not wanting to be like them. You know, both extremes, the scripture tells us, are to be avoided. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5, not to associate with immoral people. And then he clarifies that he means the immoral people in the church, so that you don't tolerate any sin in the church. But that he did not mean with all the immoral people of this world, because if you were to do that, you will have to go out of the world, he says. And to have no association at all with unbelievers is to be on one end of that spectrum. You know, those of you who work with unbelievers, what would they say about you? Those of you, those of you who have neighbors that are unbelievers, would they think of you as someone whose life reflects something supernatural? Would they say, God is with this man? God, God is with this woman? God is with you, Abimelech says. Getting back to the story, you know, Abimelech has a point in mentioning that up front because it is on the basis of God's presence that he now initiates a covenant with Abraham. And so what's the substance of that covenant? What's the point? Notice verse 23. On the basis of your relationship with God, he says, I want you to swear to me something. I want you to get into a covenant with me. Now this word swear that occurs first in verse 23, uh, its various derivations occur throughout this text. And remember one of the things about Hebrew text is the word that gets repeated is actually a dominant theme throughout this text. Notice verse 23 has that word. Verse 24 has the same word. And then verse 31, where it says the two of them took an oath, comes from the same word, swear. And then the word Beersheba also has the word oath in it. And that word is used three times in this particular text. Six times we have the word swear or oath in this text. So this section is filled with the motif of, of a covenant, an agreement, a swearing or, or taking of an oath. And what is it that Abimelech wants Abraham to swear about? Notice in the same verse, first the negative side. I want you to swear by God, uh, to me by God, he says, that you will not deal falsely with me or with my offspring or with my posterity, that is, with my descendants that will follow. And by asking Abraham to swear, what Abimelech is implicitly acknowledging is his position of power and prestige. In other words, he's saying, I recognize that you're a power to reckon with, Abraham. You're a powerful man, militarily speaking. And an explicit way in which Abimelech shows that he acknowledges the power in Abraham's life is he brings along his army commander with him, Fikol. So I want you, he says, to commit to not dealing falsely not harming me or attacking me or my children or my children's children. That's the negative side of the covenant. But notice the positive side in the same verse. 
I want you to deal with me, he says, and my children and their children in accordance with the kindness that I have shown to you, that you will show the same kindness to me and my family. The word there for kindness is the very known word hesed. We've heard that word before. This is, of course, not the first time that it occurs here. And in relationship to God, it means his covenant loyalty. It's a steadfast love for his people, a love that is supremely loyal and never gives any reason for doubting. Abraham, I want you to show this kind of love and kindness to me. Now, Abimelech, on his part, recognizes that he may not always be in a position of power or even a position of a host that he was in chapter 20, and so he wants Abraham to treat him just as he has treated Abraham. As you think of this text, what do you think is the overall goal of such a covenant? Well, it is, the goal is to establish security and stability in the region and in their relationship. It was designed to have a peace, first of all, in the relationship, and then peace in the region. You see, the resources in the desert region are limited, and such an agreement, what it did was that it assured the parties that there was a fair and a compassionate treatment of each other. So what is Abimelech asking Abraham? He's asking Abraham to get into an agreement with him. And notice Abraham's response. If you look at verse 24, which have called the permission or the ratification of the covenant to Abimelech's long request that's found in verse 23. In Hebrew, we have only a two-word response from Abraham. I swear it, or I permitted, I agree to your request. You see, Abraham is in agreement with Abimelech's request. He agrees not to deal falsely with him or his children or his posterity, and also he agrees to show kindness to Abimelech and his children. As you think of this text, it immediately raises a couple of questions for us. Uh, first of all, should unbelievers covenant with should believers covenant with unbelievers? Perhaps you're thinking here of 2 Corinthians 6.14 where Paul writes, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Perhaps you're thinking of that. Yes, it does say that. But the context there is ministry activity. Uh, that is, you and I are not to collaborate with individuals or groups that are unbelievers when it comes to sharing the gospel. That's what it is about. Clearly, we disagree on who the Lord is. Clearly, we disagree on what salvation is. How can we even think of partnering with such people? That's the context there. But there is no prohibition of getting into a partnership with unbelievers outside of the ministry setup. In fact, most of us here already act in alignment with this policy. We work for organizations or we are part of groups that are either led by unbelievers or started by unbelievers. Perhaps you live next to unbelievers, you are in agreement as you get, have an HOF, perhaps for the community that you live with. And so most of us are already doing things in line with what is stated here. But there's another question that this particular text raises, and it is this. Should believers take oath, or should they swear? Now, when we say swear, we don't mean cussing, but should we take oath? Does our Lord not say in Matthew 5.37, let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. And then James repeats a similar statement. He says, above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be a yes and your no a no so that you may not fall under judgment. Now, what is going on there? But essentially, what our Lord and what James is saying is that we should be men and women of our word. We should not say yes and then change it at the slightest provocation. If we commit to something, we should follow through with that commitment. Uh, we should not invoke heaven and earth and we should not invoke the name of God when we clearly don't intend to follow through with our commitment. That is wrong. That is sinful. And as James writes here, that invites the judgment of God. Now, although that is not the point of the verse, let me ask you, are you a man? Are you a woman of your word? Do you take commitments and promises seriously? 
or do you treat them lightly? Do you promise something and not follow through? Are you dependable? Are you someone who is reliable? Are you a person who says yes and then says no? Because if you are, then what we learn from this text is that we are not a reliable person. And this and the rest of the scriptures bear testimony to the fact that it's a very serious thing to break our word. Don't miss the fact also that here is an agreement that is about to be signed between an unbeliever and a believer. And what is the goal? The goal is to seek peace and stability. This is an indication of God's grace on Abraham's life. That is, his ways are pleasing to the Lord. He's a man of integrity and character. Doesn't the writer of Proverbs in Proverbs 16 verse 7 say, when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. We are not only to pursue peace, we are to be peacemakers, our Lord says. Paul, to the Romans, as he writes to them in Romans 12, verse 15, 18, rather, he says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. He repeats a similar command in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 10. He says, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and to attend to your own business and work with your hands, just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. In his letter to Timothy, he writes in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he says, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority. Why? so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Pursue peace. And as a result of this covenant between Abimelech and Abraham, what gets established is peace in the region. First of all, then, God's grace is seen in the initiation of this covenant. The word is given, I swear it, says Abraham, but the covenant is not yet signed. Why? Because there's a threat to the covenant that needs to be first addressed. So secondly, we see God's grace in addressing the threat to the covenant. God's grace seen in addressing the threat to the covenant. Notice verse 25. Verse 25. But Abraham complained to Abimelech because of the well of water where the servants of Abimelech had seized. You know, Abraham is ready to commit and sign the covenant, but there's a threat that needs to first be addressed. A well that belonged to Abraham was forcefully taken over or captured or seized by Abimelech's men. And if we need to commit to not dealing falsely with each other, and if we need to extend kindness to each other, then it cannot be that something that belonged to me, says Abraham, should be seized by your people. That's like speaking from both sides of your mouth. That's being disingenuous. Notice a couple of things about Abraham's complaint. We don't have the fearful or timid of a man who lacked faith that we saw in chapter 20, where he was deceptive about his relationship with Sarah. Instead, here we have a man who is bold. He's on an equal footing with Abimelech. He was a man of character. And because he's a man of character, that gives him boldness to speak before the king with confidence. You see, Abraham recognizes that he belonged to the king with the capital K. And so he stands boldly and confidently in front of a king with a small K, you can say. So there's no hesitation on his part in bringing this issue. But notice Abimelech's response in verse 26. I don't know who has done this thing, he says. You did not tell me, nor did I hear of it until today. Uh, think back to chapter 20. You know, just like the previous incidents where Abimelech is ignorant of the relationship between Sarah and Abraham, here he's ignorant of the deeds of his own servants. I don't know who has done this, he says. Uh, we have had a long relationship. You've never brought this up before, and I've never heard about it until you brought it up today, he says. Basically what he's saying is, I did not know about it, but now that I know about it, 
you can be assured that I will address it immediately. That's a good response. A good response. What is the resolution then? Notice there are two resolutions. A first resolution is found in verse 27. So Abraham takes sheep and oxen and gives them to Abimelech. Do you remember what Abimelech gave Abraham in chapter 20? He gave him sheep and oxen. And how the tables have turned. There are two reasons why animals are given, by the way. Firstly, to display generosity in a covenant. It's out of a generous and abundance of cattle and flock that he has that Abraham gives these animals to Abimelech. But secondly, they were used for sacrifices. Animals were a part of the covenant because they were used for the purpose of sacrifices. A covenant at least had three elements. All three of them are mentioned here. There was an oath, which we've already seen, uh, that is a swearing. A covenant uh, also had sacrifices involved in it, which we're looking at right now. And a covenant also had witnesses. So we've seen the oath being taken earlier. We've dealt with the sacrifice part. And now, now, of course, we're dealing with the sacrifice part in verse 27. Abraham takes some sheep and oxen, gives them to Abimelech. So some of the flock is then used for sacrifices. <clears throat> Excuse me. But there's another element, as I said, and it is the element of witnesses. Notice verse 28 to verse 30. Abraham takes seven ewe lambs. Uh, these were female lambs, by the way, and they were considered a very precious commodity. So Abraham takes these seven ewe lambs, verse 28, and he gives them to Abimelech. Why do these what do these seven ewe lambs mean, he says, which you have said by themselves? Notice his response. He says, you shall take these seven ewe lambs from my hand so that it may be a witness to me that I dug this well. I want you to take these lambs from me as a witness that I dug this well. When you take it from me, Abimelech, you are affirming my claim to this well. There you have it, an oath a sacrifice, and a witness. If you take these lambs from me, you're affirming that the well belongs to me. That's what the seven ewe lambs were about. We have an oath, a sacrifice, and a witness in place to now sign a covenant. You might say, living in, in Texas in the 21st century, what's such a big deal about a well? Well, you see, a well was a source of water, Water was a precious commodity in the Middle East. Uh, it was the very source of people's survival there. And it was not commonly found. Oases were not very common. And water sources were also very rare. And so communities would spring up wherever water was available. That is true of the Middle East. And that is also true of the majority of the major cities in this world. And most of the major cities became major because of the availability of water nearby. Uh, you think of Hudson and New York, or uh, Thames and London, or Seine and, and Paris, and some people tell me Trinity and Dallas as well. Uh, for those of you who are not from Dallas, the residents tell us that there used to be a river called Trinity on which the city was established. Every time I cross and go into the city center, I try to find where this river is. I've been told that in some parts of the city, it does have water. Anyway, well, if it's important now, you can imagine how important water was in 2000 BC. A well then represented supply and provision. A well represented life. Just as a side note, and more relevant to our singles group here, we have a number of stories in the Bible where singles met their future spouse at a well. Uh, Jacob uh, met Rachel at a well. Moses and Zipporah, they met at a well. And although Isaac did not meet Rebecca at a well, it is at a well that she was first spotted. Now that's just a side note, it's not even in my comments here. So don't go back home and dig a well for those of you still looking for a spouse, you know. Well, uh, suffice it to say, a well was important beyond just a meeting place. It represented life. Uh, water was important. And so, not only did it represent life, it represented, in Abraham's case, a possession of a property. 
and Abraham needed to ensure that he had one. That brings us thirdly to God's grace in applying the covenant. Notice verse 31. Therefore, he called that place Beersheba because there the two of them took an oath. And so they made a covenant at Beersheba and Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, arose and returned to the land of the Philistines. You know, the writer so far has dropped enough hints. A number of times he's mentioned the word oath and swearing. That it is very natural now for Abraham to call this place Beersheba. He calls it Beersheba because there the two, that is Abraham and Abimelech, took an oath. Uh, It is there that they made a covenant and then after the covenant was made, Abimelech and Phicol, as we are told in verse 32, they head back to their land. What does Beersheba mean? Notice where it is. It's on the southwest side uh, of what is modern day Israel. Uh, Beersheba really means oath. Uh, a a, a well of oath. The word oath is also the word seven in Hebrew. And so it could mean a well of the seven because of the seven ewe lambs that Abraham gave to Abimelech. Or it could also mean a well of oath because that's where they took the oath. God's grace is then seen in the routine of life. In giving Isaac to Abraham, we saw God being gracious to Abraham. That began in chapter 21. God fulfilled the promise he had made to Abraham there. We saw God's grace on his life in the departure of Ishmael and Hagar. And in now giving him a well, God actually fulfills another promise to Abraham, the starting point of giving him land in this region. In fact, Beersheba actually became quite famous. It went on to become the southernmost border of the nation of Israel. You know, the phrase Dan to Beersheba began to be commonly used to identify the borders of Israel. I don't have Dan on there. It's used like that in Judges and First and Second Samuel and a number of other places. And that Dan is the northernmost point or northernmost point and Beersheba is the southernmost point of Israel. Now, what are we seeing here? You know, we are seeing here the grace of God in the ordinary affairs of life. You know, think about this. In chapter 21 itself, we have seen God provide Abraham with Isaac. We have seen God's grace in removing Ishmael and Hagar from Abraham's life. And throughout this episodes that are taking place in his life, God has been teaching Abraham that his promises are not dependent on human schemes and deceptiveness for their fulfillment. Uh, We see Abimelech, an unbeliever, himself taking an initiative to establish a covenant with Abraham, a peace agreement, when what Abraham tried to get deceptively from Abimelech earlier, God turns that circumstance around by bringing Abimelech back into Abraham's life to establish peace. Abraham and his descendants can now dwell safely in this land. But we're still not done. God not only establishes peace for Abraham, he also provides for his need of water through this well. What a beautiful illustration of how God faithfully provides everything. Everything that we need for life and godliness is provided by our gracious God so that we are set up for spiritual success. I don't know what kind of homes you've grown up with, and I've mentioned this a few times in the past. Perhaps you've grown up in a godly home. Can I remind you that God has given you things that he has set you up for spiritual success. Perhaps you've not grown up in a godly home, but you're here tonight. Uh, Tonight, if you're not a believer, is an opportunity to get this ball rolling and to set yourself up for spiritual success. Think about your own life. You know, God has so faithfully provided for you, for your daily needs. He has never not cared for you. He's carried you on his wings. He has covered you under his wings. He has been kind and trustworthy. There's a temptation in seeing God's hand that we're all prone to be tempted with and just the highs and the thrills of life. But we make much less of the faithfulness in the daily routine and ordinariness of life. 
You see, what this text really reminds us that he is a faithful and a gracious God in the highs and thrills of life and the routine, ordinary things of life as well. He's a faithful and a gracious God in and through it all. What is Abraham's response to such a display of God's faithfulness and grace towards him? That brings us to the last thing that we will look at today, and that is verse 33 and verse 34. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and here he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned in the land of the Philistines for many days. Uh, What kind of response do we see? Well, we see at least three things expressed in these two verses. First of all, we see Abraham plants a tree, a tamarisk tree at this location. Secondly, he calls on the name of God. That is, he offers worship to God, the everlasting God, it says. And thirdly, He continues to sojourn, the last verse, in the land of Philistines for many days. Uh, First of all, the tamarisk tree. It's an expression of Abraham's thanks to God's faithfulness in his life. Uh, This is a small, medium-sized tree that can grow up to 30 feet tall. And one of the marks of this tree is that even in the midst of the hot desert, it remains evergreen. Uh, This one is planted near a water source. We saw the well earlier. And so it will exist. It will remain for a long time. You see, this was a great reminder to Abraham of God's faithfulness in his life. Having a well was a starting point of God's promises to Abraham coming to fruition. This was an expression of Abraham's thanks to, to God. The tree represented a fulfillment of a promise. And because of its longevity, it pointed to one of God's key characteristics, his everlastingness. First of all, then, the tree really is an expression of his thanks uh, to him. But notice, secondly, there it is that he calls on the name of Yahweh and invokes a name for Yahweh. What is that? The everlasting God. It is here that he worships It was natural for Abraham to worship God as an expression of his gratitude towards this great God and to invoke a name of God, a name that is used for the first time in connection with God here. Now, the word occurs ten times before this in the book of Genesis, but this is the first time that it occurs in relationship with God. Now, what is that word? It's he is the everlasting God. What does that mean? He alone is one who transcends time. He exists from eternity to eternity. And we as finite beings cannot even begin to grasp what that means. We'll never fully comprehend what it means for God to be everlasting. You see, from our eyes, we're mortal beings, finite beings. We measure time. Uh, Time for 128 dinner, 6.30 on Wednesdays. Uh, There's a time for announcements. Uh, There's a time for lesson. There's a time for small groups. There's a time for fellowship. But none of those times extend into eternity. It's something that cannot be measured, and yet the Bible repeatedly presents God as an eternal God. He's an everlasting God, one who is from everlasting to everlasting. He occupies eternity. So how can we even begin to understand what that means? Moses, in the only psalm that is recorded for us in the scripture, he writes, as he captures the time aspect of God's everlastingness, he writes, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Not only is an aspect of time to this particular name, there's also an aspect of protection. In Deuteronomy 33, verse 27, it says, The eternal God is a dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. If he has your name written on his palms, is he one who's going to forget you? No. 
he is not. The everlastingness of God signifies his protective arms around us. I don't know what some of you might be going through, some of us might be going through some difficult circumstances of life. What a great reminder that you and I believe in an everlasting God. Not only there's an aspect of time and protection, but there's also an aspect of understanding. In in Isaiah 40 verse 28, Isaiah notes for us, do you not know, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. There's an aspect of time, there's an aspect of protection, there's an aspect of understanding, but there's also an aspect of love. In Isaiah 54 verse eight it says, but with everlasting loving kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your redeemer. His everlastingness then represents not only he is not bound by time, but it also tells us of his protection, of his understanding, and of his love for you and for me. But there's a third aspect, or a third response to God's grace. The sojourning of Abraham that's mentioned in verse 34, that he sojourned in the land of the Philistines for many days. So as you think of God's everlastingness, you're immediately brought down to earth in verse 34 as you think of Abraham's temporariness, his mortality. But even in the numbering of his days, we see God's hand in what seems from our perspective a very regular, a mundane, and ordinary routine of life. And Abraham sojourned in the land of the Philistines for many days. Even as it mentions there, Uh, The mentioning of it is exactly the point. And so we end where we started, really, if you remember what I mentioned at the beginning. Uh, Dear brother, sister, don't see God only in the highs and thrills of life. He is just as present in the daily routine of life as he is in those great and significant moments of life. He is the same God. He is an everlasting God. He is eternal But you know, he's not only eternal, as we were singing earlier, he's also Emmanuel. And we were reminded of this even at the beginning of this section, where Abimelech, this unbeliever, reminds Abraham, God is with you in all that you do, he says, verse 22. And this same God who is an everlasting God, he's also Emmanuel, he's God with you and with me. So what, what should be our response to such an Emmanuel? It should be to trust him. He's a God with us. Our response is to trust this God. And we see a God who is with us. And it's wonderful to think about this in this month. We see this in the incarnation, don't we? We see both of these attributes coming together first in the first coming of Christ. Isn't it Matthew who records this for us? He says in Matthew chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. Now all this, he says, took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And what is that? It is this prophecy. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. You see, in Christ, God became a man. Paul writes in Philippians, he humbled Himself, He who existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God something to be held on to, something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a born servant, being made in the likeness of men. And being found in the form of a man, in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. And for this reason, Paul goes on to say, God highly exalted him and gave him a name above that is every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see this everlasting God, the word there is olam, the everlasting God, He offers you and he offers me eternal life in Christ Jesus. 
Jesus would say to his listeners, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Perhaps you hear, you've never trusted him as your Lord and Savior. He invites you to consider him. He invites you to repent of your sins and believe in the only way that God has made it possible for us to be right with him. God's presence in the highs and thrills of life, uh, but the normal routine of life is the same. He is the same gracious God, the everlasting God. Let's close our time as we think of these things in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for these wonderful reminders from your word. That as you were with Abraham almost 4,000 years back, you are the same God who was with David, who was with Jesus and the apostles, and who is with us even today. And the requirements for us to be right with you remain the same. We need to repent of our sins and place our trust in you. For those of us who are already a part of your family, for those of us who are followers of Christ, what a comforting reminder this is that as much as you are in the highs of our life, in the significant events of our life, that you're also the same God who is a gracious God in the very routines and ordinariness of our life. Help us not to forget that, Lord. As we come to the end of our time here, I also pray, Lord, for the opportunities that we will have as believers to share the gospel. May we be found faithful and faithfully sharing the gospel. I pray once again for our concert that's coming up. May our name be exalted and may it be proclaimed clearly that you would draw your people to yourself. And this is why Jesus came. He came to die for his people. We're thankful for him and thankful for the fact that he is with us. Uh, thankful for the fact and worship you for the fact that you're an everlasting God. I commit the time in the small groups into your hands. Pray that you would be honored as we reflect on the lesson. We ask these things in Christ's precious and worthy name. Amen.